127 months now. Uh, the second longest was in the 90s, and in fact, there have only been three bull markets now in history that are longer than seven years. An old Wall Street proverb says that the stock market climbs a wall of worry and to march into bullish territory. And there's certainly a lot to worry about these days. In a cruel twist, two egomaniacs with orange hair control two of the world's largest and most important economies, um, and they're causing havoc. If you look at the US, the first, the first worry most people think to is uh, the trade wars with China. But we could also worry about potential some instability in the Middle East or just US foreign policy generally. We can worry about signs that the, uh, the US economy is heading for recession. Uh, and finally, political instability and or a potential impeachment of, of the president or, uh, or just a change in government with the elections next year. On the other side of the Atlantic, we can worry about the outcome of Brexit three, three and a half years later. We still don't have any clearer picture of what's actually going to happen there. And the economies in Europe are weakening. The, uh, the data may shortly show that uh, Germany's actually been in recession for the last two quarters. But the market doesn't seem to care. So the first, the first topic today is whether the market may, may be too complacent and ignoring fundamental risks. And then the other area of the market may be complacent. We've, uh, the last decade has all been about growth and defensive stocks. So if you invested in the bull market, the start of the bull market in March 2009 in the, uh, in the index, the world index, you'd be up 180% or 10% per annum. That's, that's a great return. But in fact, if you invest in the S&P tech sector, you would have made 570% or be up 20% per annum. There's plenty to worry about on this side of the market as well. You just have to look to the leading US Democratic candidate, Elizabeth Warren, who wants to break up, regulate, turn uh, tech into a utility of some sort. So is the world market drowning, world drowning in complacency, ignoring valuations, particularly is there a growth bubble? So let's, let's quickly make the case for worrying about, uh, about the fundamental risks. So lots of statistics to look at. PMIs is one most, most commonly referred to. It's the Purchasing Managers Index. Global, global PMIs have been falling since the beginning of 2018. And they've actually turned negative in the last four months uh, for manufacturing. And, and perhaps as a worrying sign, the US, which was thought to kind of maybe be something that could hold the, uh, the world into a better economic situation, has also started falling more recently. Next, we can look at uh, earnings. Um, global earnings revisions remain weak and are getting worse versus expectations. At Alfinity, we track earnings expectations very closely, and this is actually one of our, our statistics here, uh, which looks at diffusion ratio of company earnings, um, analyst upgrades versus downgrades across the whole market. And you can see that it fell precipitously at the end of last year and hasn't, hasn't rebounded. It's been a dead cat bounce. So that's not a good sign. Next, let's, let's talk about the yield curve, which, uh, um, so you know, very closely watched indicator. It's the difference between the long-term bond rate and the, and the short-term bond rate. And the theory is that as recession approaches, that the long-term rates fall and that the curve flattens and eventually inverts. So this is accurately predicted every, US, every recent US recession, and we've had a flat curve recently, and in fact, the three-month, 10-year rate has inverted um, until recently, and uh, so this, this is taken by many as a sign that recession is coming. And then if recession is coming, the, uh, the companies have borrowed more than ever before. So financial crisis is all about debt, but actually we've taken on more debt since. This is the, uh, EV to EBITDA, the net debt to EBITDA ratios of um, some, some big sectors in the, in the uh, economy. Um, if you look at specifically on companies, it's even worse than this, but this is just looking at aggregates. Utilities up from about three times EBITDA to five times. You've got uh, staples up from one and a half to three times, and industrial leverage is also high. And uh, you know, cer certain specific companies have taken an even more aggressive approach, um, borrowing money and buying back shares. So if 
we go into recession, this could get ugly. So, is the stock market, the stock market's elevated? Is it complacent? And is it like Wiley Cody running off a cliff? It just hasn't realized that actually the world has changed and it's about to fall. Well, perhaps something else might be going on. Any money manager will tell you this has felt like the most bearish bull market. Uh, markets are higher, but it sure doesn't feel like it. And in fact, the market is behaving more like a bear market than it is a bull market at the moment when you look inside the market. So the, the chart here shows you the performance of certain sectors in the economy. And the sectors you would expect to outperform in a, bear, in a bull market, sorry, in a bear market, have been outperforming. Utilities, real estate, and, and also tech there. So they've, they've been outperforming significantly, and the sectors you'd expect to underperform in a bear market have been. In emerging markets, materials, banks, energy. The market is behaving like a bear market. If the market was 20% lower, we wouldn't be talking about whether the market's complacent, we'd be talking about when is the bear market gonna end. And then perhaps, perhaps we shouldn't be so worried. This is a, this is a chart of a broader range of, of statistics, um, looking at valuations, corporate behavior, behavior. And you can see there the two, the two most recent bear markets, and the red indicates where we've had um, extreme levels. And, but then if we look at today, or even back in September last year, where things started to, to crater, and we saw that sharp drawdown in December, or through the last quarter, the, the metrics don't look so stretched, and certainly a range of um, valuation, corporate profitability, and exuberance don't look as bad as some of the metrics we talked about before. So, you know, firstly, the market's behaving like a bear market, but perhaps things aren't as bad as they seem. Perhaps a better question to ask is why is the market holding up um, when, when, this is, when this is happening and behaving like a bear market? So the most important factor by far in valuation is interest rates. It's the benchmark that sets all other asset prices. And the theory says that an investment is worth the, the discount, the, the, the free cash flow of a, of a business over from now to eternity discounted back to today. So as you lower interest rates, the valuation of all assets go up. And about a year ago, the 10-year rate was over 3%, and to uh, even earlier this month and, and the month before, it dropped as low as 1.5%. So we've fallen about 1.5% in, in the last year in interest rates. And what's more important, it's not just that interest rates have fallen, it's actually that people are now starting to believe that maybe interest rates are permanently lower for a long period of time. The, the high, the most recent high, turned quite quickly. And therefore, maybe we're not, going to, we're not going to get back to those interest rates before. So people are starting to factor that into their thinking. And if you, if you take just that 1.5% fall and you put that into a, into a DCF model, it has about a 25% impact on valuation just looking at a kind of 2% growing company. So if we, if we take lower interest rate expectations, sort of permanent lower interest rate expectations of 1.5%, the market should be 25% higher, but it's actually flat on, on pretty much all of last year. It's been flat for sort of two years with, with a sharp drawdown last December. So it's, it's too easy to just say, looking at the overall level index, whether the market's complacent. So the second topic is whether the market is complacent about growth. Well, it's well documented, 12, 12 years, value hasn't worked. In fact, value has underperformed the market by about 20%, 1.7% per annum. And then if you look at it on a PE basis, the, uh, the growth stocks look expensive on a PE basis versus value. So currently 22 times for the growth index versus 13 times the value index, that is actually stretched now to about an eight times multiple um, divergence, and, and there's other stats you can look at that sort of measure this on a, you know, how many standard deviations we are away from history. So one thing says value is dead, I hear that all the time from growth managers um, who, who wanna sort of talk about that. The other one is that 
Um, you know, growth is far too expensive and, and people are just too complacent about these, these disruptive sto um, stocks. So is the market irrational on, on one side or the other? Perhaps neither of those views are right. So take four free cash flow profiles here. So slow growth in the top left, this is just a 2% growing company. You can take a sort of slightly declining or rising company or a cyclical company, um, which, which has volatile results. That's, that side of the equation is what a typical sort of value stock is. So what a value manager or a value stock is. On the right hand side is, is a typical growth company. That's just a 10% growing free cash flow profile. And then the bottom one is the uh, bottom right is a hyper growth stock, something losing money for a number of years, but then it's got huge revenue growth and at some point people expect it to make, be very profitable. These companies actually, these free cash flow profiles I've set here to be all equal to the same valuation. So this would actually give you a $1,000 valuation for each of those starting free cash flow profiles, $79 for slow growth and, and $36 for growth. So obviously growth companies are meant to be more expensive because they're growing faster, etc. So yeah, to sort of bring it into the real world, IBM's your typical example, kind of a melting ice cube type company, top left. Cyclical, Caterpillar might be a good example, very, very cyclical through the cycle. This is the last 10 years of cash flows for these companies, not forecast, by the way, so this just shows you the sort of profile. Top right-hand side, MasterCard, 10 years, it's compounded free cash flow at 18% per annum, sort of the poster child for a growth stock. And a hyper-growth stock, Amazon, would probably be a poster child. Uh, exceptional free cash flow. It hasn't actually been negative, but it's, it's, it's really ramped in the last couple of years, and it's grown 55% compounded over the last just five years, so not even taking that early period where they weren't making much. So why does it matter? So growth should have outperformed value if you take this interest rate environment again. So if you drop the, the discount rate from 9% to 6%, so a 3% drop over time, so going back to what it was kind of 2007 to, to today, then, then growth, the, a, a sort of standard um, slow growth company should be about worth about one and a half times what it is today. But if you then apply the same, free, the same analysis across growth companies or hyper growth companies, they should be much higher. So a growth company should be two times or a hyper growth company three times the, the, the free cash flow. So it's too simplistic just to say that things are stretched on a historic basis. The world is different than it was before. Perhaps it's gonna stay low for, for a long period of time, Perhaps we'll have interest rates return. Either of those will prove one side of the equation right or the other, but the starting point has to be that the market, it, it's too simple to just say that things are stretched versus history. But to be clear, I'm not suggesting that growth continues to outperform or that value stocks take leadership. We're not trying to take a position. Uh, I'm not trying to take a position on that. And, um, and if you believe interest rates are this low and they're gonna stay low, stocks are incredibly cheap versus other asset classes. So, that's, that's probably one starting point if you do believe, do believe this side of the, the equation. So, uh, so we, we follow earnings leadership. At the moment, when you look at earnings leadership in the world, it's definitely on the defensive side and the quality side and also somewhat on the growth side. But we also find finding some companies that have idiosyncratic earnings on the value, um, that are sort of typical value stocks. And the, if the situation changes, um, your manager or manager should very quickly move to the other, other side of the market where the economic situation changes, we go into recession, or whether the, um, the situation changes and we actually change our whole interest rate environment. And I'll pass over to Ashley. Thanks, Ashley. Hello, everyone. <coughs> where are we? Green one? Rookie error, it's always away. There we are. So September the 15th marked the 11 year anniversary of the Lehman Brothers bankruptcy. 
and the start of the global financial crisis. When we saw unprecedented central bank action, where we had 715 interest rate hikes, uh, we also had, as I get the, there we are, uh, we had unprecedented interest rate hikes, where we had, sorry, interest rate cut, 715. We also had uh, 13 trillion of QE, and we had the lowest rates in 100 years. Now, fortunately, that stopped debt deflation, it stopped the depression, it reflated Wall Street, and it gave us, as Lachlan said, the longest bull market or best bull market in credit and also equities in history. Now, one of the best decisions any of us could have made over the last 10 years was just being broadly invested in global equities, be it an index, be it an ETF, or be it into a thematic growth fund. And especially when you compare that to cash, it was, it was a great decision. Now, in hindsight, we had many tailwinds, be it compelling valuations post the global financial crisis, interest rates coming down, QE and the Australian dollar coming down. But we believe many of those tailwinds are actually becoming headwinds. And in such an environment, we believe that one, leadership in the market will be different, and also the returns in the next decade will not compare to the great returns that we've had over this decade. We think, therefore, you should be really highly concentrated in your, in your fund positioning. You should, you should look more like a private equity type of approach to your investments and not a broad-based approach. So why do we believe that these tailwinds are becoming headwinds, even though when you look at the broad volatility measures, they're at all-time lows? Well, first of all, valuations being compelling is a hard ask. You've got market at an all-time high. If you use the S&P just as a proxy, it's on a non-GAAP PE of 17 times, a GAAP PE of closer to 20 times, and the S&P's up four times since, since the, the crisis lows. What you're also seeing is very much a bifurcated market, especially this year, and that it's been very, very narrow. If you look at interest rates, interest rates are down a long way. So, for instance, we've had 43 interest rate cuts in 2019 alone. And if you look at the G7 bonds, they're at 120-year lows. Now, again, I would like to just use the US as a proxy. So, if you use the US 10-year, the US 10-year bond, it bottomed in 2012 at 1.36% when the euro crisis was on and everybody believed that the European banks would be nationalised and that the euro would fall apart. So it was 1.36% 2012. Then if you fast forward to Brexit, when everybody thought um, that trade would just disappear after the Brexit vote, it bottomed again at 1.36. If you fast forward to earlier this year, it bottomed at 1.4% again, because of the trade issues. So again, interest rates have fallen a long, long way. Now, it is true, when you look on the right-hand side uh, chart, that G7 currency volatility is at the same levels as it is at 1992. But we've just started to see China be classed as a currency manipulator by the US. And I think people really have to remember that in 1995, there was, there was a plaza record which really turned currencies upside down at the time. 
And what happened is that it, it meant that the US, was, US currency weakened, the Japanese yen dramatically increased, and then you got a lost decade in Japan. So a lot of economists at the time said that uh, the Americans wanted to turn currency upside down because they were concerned about Japan becoming an economic superpower. So again, parallels are very similar to where we sit today. Now, when you have 15 trillion, it's actually 17 trillion now, negative 17 trillion of government debt, investors are being pushed up the risk curve for ever declining yields. Now, when you debase cash, which is effectively what is happening, debasing of cash, distortions happen. And we're seeing that, as, Loch as Lachlan mentioned, with global debt 3.2 times GDP, the highest it's ever been. Now, you're also seeing dispersions or distortions within the equity market. Now, again, simple measure, but when you look compared to historical metrics, value is dramatically cheap on historic metrics compared to growth that is dramatically overvalued. Now, what you're also seeing this year is that 6% of MSCI stocks have given you 53% of the return for this calendar year. So again, a bifurcation in the market. If you look over the last 10 years, the darling of the stock market or the bull market has been technology or the FANG stocks. Now, REITs and utilities have also done very well. They've been classed as a growth asset. But today, I'll just really briefly touch on technology. So as you can see, over the last 10 years, the FANG stocks have tripled their exposure in the, in the index. And over the last five years, have doubled. So they have been at the epicentre of this self-fulfilling circle of debt explosion, interest rates collapsing, and passive explosion as well. Now, they are great businesses. Don't get me wrong. They're fantastic businesses. But it is quite surprising and very stark, if you ask me, the value, the, the market capitalisations of a lot of these businesses, especially when you compare them to country GDP. So again, it reminds me of 1989, when the Imperial Palace in Japan was worth the same amount as all of California. Now again, simple measure, but it just, it just stands out as very stark. And then, if you bring it back and say, okay, let's just contain ourselves within the technology sector. Let's compare the key, the key stocks now compared to 2000 or the tech bubble. And on the right-hand side, AOL in 2000, 150 PE, 30 times book value, very, very similar to what Netflix is trading at the moment. And then, if you just look at the NASDAQ as a percent of, of GDP, again, very, very similar. So again, there's that big bifurcation in the market. So overall, we believe that tailwinds are becoming headwinds and that the returns on the market will not be similar in the next decade as in the last decade and that we believe you need to be highly concentrated in your stock picking fundamental bottom up because not all boats will rise as, as the environment changes over the next decade. So with that, I'll pass it back to Alex and thanks for your time. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you.
So I think probably the best place now is to sort of switch to a polling question. So if you pull out your device and go to slido.com, slido.com, and the tag for the event is capital E, capital S, 2019. And the first question that we're going to ask is around what do you perceive as the biggest risk to, to equity markets? And we have multiple choices. Just start to put up on the screen. If you've got a problem with submitting, please raise your hand. Oh, ES 2019. It's on the left-hand side of the screen. Okay. Oh, Wi-Fi code is... Yeah, OCT 30 and then we'll, we'll switch to a, a second question. Okay, uh, we'll go to the second, second question around central bank influence um, on markets. So whether the, the baton has now been passed for, you know, to governments for fiscal stimulus, negative interest rate demonstrates it's not working, more direct monetization, um, ever-increasing political weapons. All right. Last couple, let's get to... 30 responses and then we'll change. Okay. Let's stop it there and let's switch back to, to the panel. Um, well, the biggest risk people still believe is the geopolitical environment. Um, despite what you've both said about valuations, geopolitics still seems to be the, the driving factor. Um, Lachlan, do you want to to comment on, on how geopolitics is, is the backdrop to this? Well, fir first I should say, um, as you know, just sort of leaned over and said what we each of us would pick and we, we thought central banks were the biggest risk. So, <laughs> um, ge geopolitics, I mean, there, there's, there's always many moving pieces in geopolitics um, and there's lots of interest. It's an interesting time at the moment given the US elections coming up and the like. So I think there's, uh, to, your, to your part of your title here, there's reflexivity going on that some of the talk with the trade war is that, yes, there's the, the trade war, but actually Trump needs to have some sort of win and some sort of resolution to this because he doesn't want to go into a, uh, into a recession next year and, and, uh, and have the, the, the whole of next year being talking about how he couldn't actually get a, get a, uh, a trade deal done with China. So there's, it's very hard for us as, as fundamental stock pickers to actually sit here and, and make predictions about that. Firstly, it's not our, 
our, our game. Um, we, we think about those risks in the stocks we pick, but we, it's very difficult for us to, to understand what's going to happen because there are things that happen in counterbalance to other things that happen. Mm -hmm. That's right. yeah. so, so we agree. So in other words, look back at the last 20 years, you had an Asian crisis, you had a tech wreck, you had uh, terrorist attacks, you had a couple of wars, you had the global financial crisis, you had Brexit, and now you've got, you've got uh, the, the trade issue with, with the Donald. So if you worried about those type of external factors, you would have missed the best bull market in history. So what we do is we try, we're cognizant of the macro, so we try and take advantage of the macro, aka when people get scared and people hate stuff, if it's a number one asset, that, you know, a waterfront asset that we're getting something for free, we get excited. Uh, and that's really how we, you know, how we look at things. So, and, I'm, and Lachlan, I know, was the same. When we looked at both of those, those uh, polling, I think we were the contrarian on both. In other words, we were the last on the bottom, so. Well, the, the interesting piece is that, okay, central banks would have been your choice, and there was still quite a significant number of people that did pick central banks. But, you know, when we look at the next question around central bank influence, mm. and has it peaked, people are saying, well, yes, because it's now being passed on to fiscal stimulus, right, which is, which is an interesting one in the sense that the central banks were driving a lot of this, and, and as I said, I was being cheeky with the title around the plunge protection team being the lower and lower interest rates driving markets, and whenever there's some sort of geopolitical risk around the trade war, you're seeing Trump pushing back on the central bank to do more, to drop rates, to keep it, keep it going. And then people now seem to expect that it's now fiscal policy. The central banks um, are no longer being able to do what, what they have done, and which is propping up the market, and it's, it's transitioning to fiscal policy. Um, I guess the interesting question there is, you know, central banks seem to, around the world, be pushing back, raising their hands and saying, no, no, governments, We've, we've hit the bottom end, you know, where do we go? So what does this mean then for, for actual stock markets when you don't have that broad-based flood of liquidity that comes from lower interest rates? So I think first of the nuance between the question, the second question and kind of our answers to the first question would be that what we're worried about is not necessarily that they're, well, it's, it's not the continuation of further monetary policy, that, that will probably continue anyway in my view, but it's actually the, the reversal potentially of the current QE and, and the current monetary policy is the biggest risk to markets. And you saw that, what, what we saw at the end of last year was, uh, I think, exactly that. Interest rates got started heading back up, markets started freaking out and, and started uh, reassessing what this means, thought that the, the Fed in particular was behind the curve and, and sold off heavily into December. Then as soon as they reversed course again early in the new year, markets reversed again. So we've seen evidence that that is, that is such a high risk to, to market valuations. Um, <coughs> The, the, the other side of it, though, is is there actually going to be any continuing effect of interest uh, or of monetary policy in the world? And a, a decade ago, if you, if you looked at where we are today, it's, it's almost unthinkable uh, where we've got to. You know, the, if you just take the US, we've got, we've got full employment, we've got um, budget deficits at 5% and heading higher, we've got um, the, the interest rates um, sub-2, and yet at the same time, inflation is benign. Like, this is... This shouldn't be happening. First of all, interest rates shouldn't be this low when you've got full employment and everything else looking as, as good as it is. Why are they trying to just tick up inflation? And why is inflation so benign given the situation we've got? And you can argue how inflation is measured and all sorts of other things, but, but this situation probably shouldn't happen. How do we get out of this? I'm, I'm not sure. And that's, that's kind of what, what worries us, though, to be honest, what worries us most in picking stocks. But. Okay. 
So if you look at, already in 2019, interest rates have been cut by 43, or 43 times across the world. So the central banks are still pump priming the economy. And then at the same time, you look at America, budget deficit, virtually the same level as it was in the Reagan tax cuts and the Vietnam War era, and going higher. Then you go to Europe and you say, okay, who doesn't have a deficit? And virtually there's only one country, which is Germany. Everybody else now, I know there's a couple of Nordics, but virtually everybody else has budget deficits that are between three and 4%, above their capped limits that they're supposed to have, UK deficit. So when we say that, that fiscal stimulus has to come through, a lot of it's already happening. Now, there's one or two little instances that, it's, that it hasn't fully accelerated. And it may be in America that they do some private-public partnerships and all the rest. But they, they, they have been stepping to the plate. And therefore, we believe longer term that what happens is you do, you get to a pinch point. So the pinch point, one day, and it might be one year, three years, five years, that inflation does accelerate. And the reason it accelerates is because super laxed interest rates, You've got budget deficits, which are always inflationary. You've got unemployment that's back to, what, 1960 type of levels. You've got wage growth in the US, again, just using that as a proxy. US wage growth that's at the same level, about 25 to 3.2% per annum level, the same as it was pre the crisis. So again, it's a time issue. It's a time issue. Now, I always like to say, well, why haven't we seen inflation today? Well, think about it. When you when you've had a bull market, just look at this place. When you have a bull market um, in property like we had pre the crisis, what are they doing? They're building hotels, they're building property, they're building everything. Which, and then when the slowdown happens, you've just got all this spare capacity. And it just takes time for spare capacity to be filled up. And then when it does, the pinch point changes very, very quickly. We'll open it up for, for questions. If there's any questions, just push your, your microphone, your, your light. While, while you're thinking about your questions. Um, I guess my next question is in terms of pricing and valuation. Some of the, the arguments around sort of these high valuations is the changing nature of business, they're becoming more tech related, whether they you know, claim to be or not. You know, we were claimed to be a, a tech business, right? You've you got all these, these tech companies that are supposedly capitally less intensive, which is supposedly supports the valuation. So keen to get your thoughts on, on that piece. And the other piece around the labor pricing piece is that Labor's missed out a for a long time in markets from a, you know, capturing some of the returns to productivity. You know, with, with such low um, you know, unemployment, what does that do to potential earnings growth for companies? So two, two parts, maybe Lachlan. Sure, um, valuation is interesting. I, um, I, I take, take Ashley's point, as you showed you the, the sort of size of some of these tech companies and their growing importance in the index. But the earnings have also followed followed that with a lot of them, and in fact, there's been a derating in some of those large cap tech companies. So I, I, um, certainly the largest cap tech companies, I don't think there's a, a huge valuation bubble, unless there's an earnings problem. So take, take Google, it just reported this morning, it's growing 22% on constant currency. It's, it's actually accelerating its, its revenue growth versus, um, versus last year. It, it, people aren't modeling that, people haven't been modeling that for a long time, everyone's thinking that growth's gonna keep flowing off. And then um, it's on 20, 23 times um, gap PE. So it's not, it's not exactly a sort of one times revenue peg ratio. 
same Facebook's like saying it's on 20 times PE on gap earnings and it's, it's growing at 25% this year. But there's other parts of the market which I think are very stretched if things reverse. So there's certainly this, the hyper growth tech companies have, have not sort of proven they're profitable and they've, they've been at very high valuations and perhaps that will reverse. And, and separately, you just have to look at some of the staples companies and some of the sort of very dependable bond proxy type companies, defensive things that people are crowding into at the moment because they're worried about recession that those valuations um, there might be at risk if, if things change. If you look at the, so I'll just touch on wage, on the wage graphs or labour side. If you look at America, as I said, that, that the wage growth that we're seeing there is back to pre-crisis levels. So if you just take America as its, as its own island, then you would say that there, there has been labour participation in, in the recovery. Now, you can argue it hasn't been to the same degree as Wall Street, uh, but it's, it's improved. Then I go over to Europe and I say the issue that you've had with Europe is the reason they haven't, and a little bit like Australia, that you haven't seen wage growth, is that they've opened up their economies to more Eastern European uh, uh, countries, which has meant that all of the smart, young... Uh, aggressive people that, that have had a fantastic education system in Slovenia, the Czech Republic and all of the rest, they're, ta they're taking those skill base and they're going either to the UK or to Germany to get the new jobs and all that type of stuff, which caps it out. I always like to say, and, and look at the, the fantastic Polish uh, electricians and plumbers that go from Poland into, into London or into the UK. They're happy to get a 30% discount on their, on their wages to, to work for two or three years and then they get that pot of money and then they go back home. So you've seen the same type of immigration effects near term that, that, that have capped out a lot of wage growth. But again, the government, because of their nationalistic bent that is, that is perpetuating since, since Donald came in uh, uh, nearly four years ago, you're starting to see that cap out with regard to the immigration profile. And then at the same time, it's harder for the EU to keep adding new countries into the EU because, or freedom of movement because they've already expanded it, which means, again, you get to a pinch point, and it might be one year, three years, five years, that, that with, unemployment, with interest rates where they are, unemployment back to 1960s levels, the US still producing wage growth, that you will not be able to keep importing inflation from China and the rest of the world. And again, even just look at a simple thing like the changes in NAFTA. I know we don't call it NAFTA anymore, but effectively the free trade agreement in America. They've included in the, in the new, what is it, USMCA agreement or new NAFTA, that there has to be a certain component of, of wages that have to be above $15. So again, it's, it's a time issue. Go to table eight, just your name and organisation, please. That's uh, Brendan Casey from REST. Thank you. Um, that's been fascinating, some of, some of the data you had and your views. appreciate that. Um, big focus on uh, the listed markets, which is not, not surprising, obviously, from your background. But I'm just wondering, um, it uh, mm. seems a trend at the moment for you know, the private equity to either not go public to seek funding elsewhere or to go very a lot later in, the, in their development as a company than they used to have. Um, just, so just want interest in your perspective on whether the place to be looking is actually now the private equity market. Just, just jump in quickly. We do have a session later this yeah, afternoon, no, a, a full hour. It's connected. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I, I actually used to work in private equity, so I've, I sort of watched that market very, very closely. It was the sort of first half of my, my career. And, and um, 
just a, two, a couple of comments on that. Private equity, for starters, is benefiting private private assets generally, not just private equity, but you've got private real estate and other, other assets are, are benefiting from record low interest rates like everything else, particularly private equity. I mean, their, their leverage ratios have increased significantly from what I remember um, uh, structuring back in the day, and, and, the, and, and now it's at such extreme levels on an EBITDA multiple, but on an interest cover multiple looks, looks reasonable. So things change there that those valuations will, will be under pressure. They're often selling it to each other rather than selling it to the, to the public markets. More specifically at the venture market, which is where some of the problems have been in the IPO market recently with WeWork and some of the others pulling out, there has, um, th those companies have benefited from, from that sort of revaluation of the growth company. So looking at listed, comps when Atlassian listed five years ago, uh, the typically it was on a sort of five times revenue multiple, it's now on 25 times. When, when and Microsoft at the time was on sort of a seven times revenue, it's now in the sort of mid-teens, low, low teens. But Microsoft's not really the problem, it's these other ones that have actually been, been the very fast, uh, very high lift in you know, lots of things on 20 times revenue multiples that haven't got free cash flow. What that's meant is that the valuations that private investors have been getting for their exits have been very high, that then flows back into the people fundraising and the amount of money that's going into the private equity market. So you look at record capital raisings, you overlay that with SoftBank's Vision Fund, which was like two years worth of capital raisings all at once, and the, the impacts that's had on, on sort of late stage growth valuations and, and pushing through that market. So I think there's potentially a, a bubble there in certain aspects of the market. I, I, I would say it, it's gonna depend on where things go in the future, where interest rates go and what happens as to, to whether that unwinds or not. And we have 35 seconds to go. So quickly, the only comment I would say is ESG is becoming more relevant. Historically, founders of businesses love to keep control and have super voting rights. Going forward, it becomes harder and harder, as we see with WeWork, to be able to keep that, which meant that these things get elongated and they look for funding another way to keep control of their businesses. But with 12 seconds to go. Pleasure. Pass back to you, Al. No, no, we're, we're running a very, <laughs> very, very tight ship today yeah. with so many sessions. He and warned us before <laughs> that we had to be on time. Mm -hmm. Please join me in thanking Lachlan and, and Ashley for the great session. <laughs>